Hello, and welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. If you enjoy this conversation, there are a few different ways you can support us. You can buy a book from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, including the title discussed in this episode, a link to which you'll find in the show notes. There, you'll also find our Year of Reading subscription, as well as Shakespeare and Company totes, apparel, mugs and other gifts, all shipped from Paris to wherever you are in the world. You can also become a friend of Shakespeare and Company, a programme we set up to get the bookshop through this difficult year. Membership gets you access to exclusively produced content throughout 2021, as well as other treats depending on the tier you choose. Contributors so far include Molly Crabapple, Aishan Hutchinson, Olivia Lang, Deborah Levy, Katika Nair, Clemence Poesie, Natalie Portman and George Saunders. You can find out more on friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com. Finally, you can rate this podcast wherever you listen. And if you have time, leave a review. It can really help spread the word. I'll be back at the end. Until then, thank you for listening and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. While we may not agree upon how we arrived here, it feels uncontroversial to assert that we live in an age of uncertainty. From questions about privacy, am I being watched, if so, by whom and to what end, to questions about politics, does an ironic lilt mean this bearded Viking should not be taken seriously, or quite the opposite, to questions about our very essence, what does it mean to have a self in the age of artificial intelligence and the hive mind? It often feels as if the solid ground, once assumed to exist beneath our feet, now shifts on an almost daily basis. In many ways, Hari Kunzru's latest novel, Red Pill, is a distillation of these questions into fiction, an extraordinarily compelling fiction at that. A writer leaves his family in Brooklyn for a three-month residency at the Deuter Center in Berlin, ostensibly to work on his book, but also to confront a few of his own demons that have been making their presence increasingly felt in his life. The centre is all about liberation through shining light into areas where there are shadows. So why then does our narrator find himself increasingly shrouded with darkness? Here to discuss Red Pill, I'm very happy today to be joined by Harry Kansru. Harry, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Nice to be here, Adam. Very nice to see you, if only on a screen. Yeah, I mean, this is... Um... I think we've only done one event actually together before for for White Tears in the in the bookstore, but it's um, in a way it feels kind of appropriate for this book that we should be doing it um, mediated by the internet. Yes, it's, it's it's a book about that mediation and a book about alienation as well. So yes, the the fractured distance is appropriate. <laughs> what um what we find about this book um, the. Uh, the character we meet at the very beginning is, I guess, a character who in many ways could be said to resemble yourself. Um, I mean, you know, or things that at least are publicly, can be publicly found out about you. So uh, you're a writer based in Brooklyn uh, with British and Indian heritage. Uh, you teach on a creative writing program, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the first of your novels in which uh the 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 narrator comes perhaps so close overlaps in so many ways um uh with 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 yourself and i'm just curious uh i spoke about a sort of um i don't know an uncertainty a kind of uh a sort of um yeah a, a, a sense of kind of uh, the ground beneath your feet not being solid um is was that one of the reasons that you decided to uh to have this overlap in a book which we should state is clearly a work of fiction it, it it was actually it, in an odd way it was slightly uh it was it was driven by a weird sort of cascade of questions i mean it, it, now i wanted to to send this book on a writer uh because i wanted him to be able to speak in a certain way about his experience and to have a certain relationship to explaining things and truth and and shared ideas of truth um and so then the question was was about exactly what kind of position he would he would occupy and um i eventually sort of decided that i i didn't want to assert that he he was white in a kind of, to make to make that sort of racial issue completely neutral and also that it interested me to have him i mean at one point i talk about the freemasonry of brown men and white spaces mm-hmm. um and my experience of going to to Germany, I did do a residency in Germany and in a very different kind of institution. You know, I've, I I tell the people from the American Academy that I stole their location and put a different uh, institution into it. 
Um, and one, I was I was there just at the time when uh, Angela Merkel had uh, accepted a large number of Syrian and other refugees, mm-hmm. and I was frequently mistaken for one of those. And so I I had an experience of um, occasional kind of excessive welcomingness, a kind of slightly sort of you know like speak very slowly and smile a lot, <laughs> um, or hostility. Um, and so that element then found its way into the book and made it again kind of brought the character closer to my own biography and at that point I kind of threw my hands up and said well you know he's going to I might as well give him all the essential furniture of my life but I've made him different from me in certain sort of respects his politics are rather different from mine he's rather more um He's he's rather a sort of a, a mournful character who doesn't who doesn't quite um, manage to connect with other people and who has who's become very introverted. So it's I I, I, I joke he's he's like a crap version of me in some ways. <laughs> I, I get to have a kind of perspective on him that he doesn't have on himself, um, and he gets into into a kind of psychological state which thank goodness i have never i've never approached that level of mm-hmm. stress um but yeah it wasn't it wasn't a very active decision it was one it was it was one of these things that a kind of set of decisions about about a book kind of leads you towards a place and and, sure. and then you, you you sort of find yourself there yeah that um that idea of him uh as you say not having a perspective on himself does seem to be actually quite quite central to this character. Um, I was thinking, you know, as a sort of uh, creative writing teacher, there's this sort of uh, sense of the sort of the the narrative arc where the um, you know whether it be the sort of the establishing the the situation, then the complication, then the um, the resolution, perhaps. And it strikes me with this character, the kind of a lot of the the complication comes kind of before the narrative starts, in fact. And when we find him. Um, perhaps due to um, the fact he's in in middle age, and in fact, at one at one moment he does say that sort of basically uh, everything you know the, the dire cast actually about his you know his life now from 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 middle age you know basically you've set things in motion that will determine um, the rest of your life. But but still that that sort of that idea of sort of yeah sort of in a, in a way in many ways this this book feels like the, the narrator trying to unpick. The complications which were perhaps established before the narrative starts yeah i mean i think that you know that's how the book opens is with this this description of middle age as a, as a sort of realization that you're not absolutely changeable that there are things mm-hmm. that, that you know are now fixed about about your possibilities and i think i think that does lead with it that brings with it uh you know a sense that you know have i have i already screwed up irreversibly Mm -hmm. i mean and and this is certainly his feeling he feels that in some way that he can't quite put his finger on he's already put himself and his family into danger and it's it's in a kind of crass way it's that it's that feeling of like we live in a world where the only real protection is money and um Mm -hmm. and you know if you have done you know if you've made a certain sort of life the kind of life that that you and i care about involving books and perhaps a certain level of financial precariousness certainly mm-hmm. compared to to you know other things that that you you know one could do can be a financial technician of some kind or a lawyer or something and um you know you you worry whether you're exposing the people you care about to risk because you won't be able to kind of uh, to to get them out of a situation I think it's possible to track the onset of middle age exactly. It's the moment when you examine your life, and instead of a field of possibility opening out, an increase in scope. You have a sense of waking from sleep or being washed up on shore, newly conscious of your surroundings. So this is where I am, you say to yourself, this is what I have become. It's when you first understand that your condition, physically, intellectually, socially, financially, is not absolutely mutable. What has already happened will, to a great extent, determine the rest of the story. What you've done cannot be undone, and much of what you've been putting off for later will never get done at all. 
In short, your time is a finite and dwindling resource. From this moment on, whatever you're doing, whatever joy or intensity or whirl of pleasure you may experience, you'll never shake the almost imperceptible sensation that you're travelling on a gentle downward slope into darkness. For me, this realisation of mortality took place, conventionally enough, beside my sleeping wife at home in our apartment in Brooklyn. As I lay awake, listening to her breathing, I knew that my strength and ingenuity had their limits. I could foresee a time when I would need to rest. How I got there was a source of amazement to me, the chain of events that had led me to that slightly overheated bedroom, to a woman who, had things turned out differently, I might never have met or recognised as the person I wanted to spend my life with. After five years of marriage, I was still in love with Ray and she was still in love with me. All that was settled, a happy fact. Our three-year-old daughter was asleep in the next room. Our very, unhappy, our very happiness made me uneasy. It was a perverse reaction, I knew. I was like a miser fretting about his emotional hoard. Yet the mental rats running round my bedroom, round my child's bedroom, had something real behind them. It was a time when the media was full of images of children hurt and displaced by war. I frequently found myself hunched over my laptop, my eyes welling with tears. I was distressed by what I saw, but also haunted by a more selfish question. If the world changed, would I be able to protect my family? Could I scale the fence with my little girl on my shoulders? Would I be able to keep hold of my wife's hand as the rubber boat overturned? Our life together was fragile. One day something would break. One of us would have an accident, one of us would fall sick, or else the world would slide further into war and chaos, engulfing us as it had so many other families. In most respects, I had little to complain about. I lived in one of the great cities of the world. Save for a few minor ailments, I was physically healthy. And I was loved, which protected me from some of the more destructive consequences of a so-called midlife crisis. I had friends who, without warning, embarked on absurd sexual affairs or in one case developed a ruinous crack habit that he kept hidden from everyone until he was arrested at 3am in Elizabeth, New Jersey, smoking behind the wheel of his parked car. I was not about to fuck the nanny or gamble away our savings, but at the same time I knew there was something profoundly but subtly wrong, some urgent question I had to answer that concerned me in isolation and couldn't be solved by waking Ray or going on the internet or padding barefoot into the bathroom and swallowing a sleeping pill. It concerned the foundation for things, beliefs I'd spent much of my life writing and thinking about, the various claims I made for myself and the world. And coincidentally or not, it arrived at a time when I was about to go away. One reason I was awake, worrying about money and climate change and Macedonian border guards, was that an airport transfer was booked for five in the morning. I never sleep well on the night before I have to travel. I'm always nervous that I'll oversleep and miss my plane. You know, another kind of part of the atmosphere surrounding the book is to do to do with safety and to do with change. And, you know, again, contemplating the, the refugee crisis and the experience of those refugees, you know, I mean, why, you know, you inevitably think of how you would be coping were it up to you to get your young family, especially as a, as a new parent, you know, uh, to get your young family out of a situation of danger, mm-hmm. you know, could you, would you have the grit and determination and, and you know, strength to, to, yeah, to yeah. Get your family to safety? And, you know, you you suspect that, you know, what would happen if you didn't? Um, and so all these kind of questions, I think, preoccupy men, men in particular, I think, mm. of a certain age, and especially as a young man, you're used to being quite kind of relatively free and relatively fearless and powerful in the world. You know, many young men have that experience. And, you know, when you suddenly have a family and there are people to care for and you're a bit older, mm. all the kind of edges to that confidence start to make themselves sure. comfortably present. <laughs> I wonder, um, sort of, you say men of a certain age, and do you think it's also men of this particular age, in, 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 by which I mean sort of maybe speaking quite broadly, like the last 60 or 70 years? Because that idea of sort of the world was my oyster and now it's not, and that kind of coming as a shock, in a sense, to the system. I wonder if maybe, you know, a few centuries ago when sort of most people were born into a world where basically they just followed in the footsteps of their parents and basically their 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 life was determined by whatever circumstances they were born into this idea of sort of having 
the opportunity to go out there and to forge your way in the world. It does seem sort of, and then, you know, the disappointment perhaps when you discover that that's not quite how how it works. Yeah, do you think that is something that sort of defines, again, this particular age and maybe specifically men of this particular I mean, I, I, I mean, there are various things kind of all mixed up in that. I mean, I'd put, the, I'd put the change much more recently in historical time. I mean, I think... You know, we have an ideology of freedom. There's a certain, there's mm-hmm. a certain. I mean, you know, like or dislike the the word neoliberal. There is a certain kind of formulation of freedom, which means a kind of independence from ties to others and obligations to others. We're encouraged to be these kind of entrepreneurs of the self, and the idea of a sort of self fashioning or self construction, which is, you know, supposed to be the kind of great glory of 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 our you know there's the the purpose of our lives is supposed to be in some way to become these full flourishing individuals mm-hmm. that's a kind of way of looking at the world that does completely erase family ties various other kinds of social context community i mean we're very bad about thinking about groups because there's this sort of paranoia mm-hmm. that any kind of you know concern for 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 group obligations kind of leads you towards some sort of totalitarianism um, so there's this question of freedom and a kind of, and I think a maybe slightly pernicious idea of of the un the unfettered self, um, that particularly I think is 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 quite a masculine notion and is is quite kind of attractive to to, to young men. Then there's a sort of crisis in the idea of what it is to be to be a man. Um, you know, years ago, um, there was quite a good phrase coined by the writer Susan Faludi. She talked about ornamental masculinity, a kind of change from definitions of masculinity that are to do with your role in the world, or to you know, you know, to do with uh, to do with function, to be more towards kind of a presentation of masculinity, a kind of mm-hmm. you know, the you know, the, the, the sort of crude version of it would be kind of grandpa got his. Uh, uh, got his identity as a man from his his work in in the mine, and uh, and sure. you, know, you, the grandson, are, are attempting to be a man through shaving your chest and working out a lot to uh-huh. look like a to look like a man, and that's that's a sort of anxious position. And you know, I mean, I think we have a we have a kind of also there's a moment there's a class element to this as well. I mean, it should be said that this is a you know I'm talking about. Uh, you know, uh, an an educated member of a of a sort of fairly elite class, but who's somebody who's not who's financially precarious, and I think that's an experience that is is increasingly common. There's a whole kind of class of people who uh, maybe grew up into a into a world. Certainly, for for those of us who grew up in European social democracies, who grew up into a world where there was this idea that if you I don't know, got a humanities education and, and, you know, were a reasonably kind of, you know, functional human being, you would be issued with a middle-class lifestyle that would uh-huh. be enough to, to sort of transmit your, uh, you know, your way of living onto the next generation. And then there's been a, you know, with the, with the kind of essentially the wholesale destruction of that, uh, that kind of way of being, there's a, there are a lot of highly educated poor people now mm-hmm. and it's especially noticeable in the in the US where there's a kind of uh, totally a, a total sort of disconnect between between the the sort of ideology of, of of what it's possible to become in America and the actual the the reality and this has been true for working people forever but it's now newly true for uh, uh, a kind of university educated elite and so that precarity is is becoming an increasing part of politics and that's definitely there in this character's um mm. sense of himself as a threatened sort of embattled person it's a kind of it's a feeling of being declassé of being proletarianized by the the new sort of social dispensation mm. I think I'd like to come back to some of these ideas when we come on a bit later to talk about the uh, the character of Anton. Mm. But um, before then, I think it's really important to sort of establish the um, the location of the book. So you've mentioned it's um, uh, in Berlin or just outside of Berlin. Um, and just as you were talking there about this kind of the this kind of ideology and the replacement of one ideology by another and the collapse of an ideology and that kind of that kind of movement in society. It struck me that Berlin is the kind of, uh, is an interesting 
case study in many ways about how one uh, a certain ideology can at least apparently be wholesale sort of replaced by another and almost completely erased from from kind of collective memory in quite a quite a short period of time yeah i mean berlin is a is a, a fascinating place to be because you know as you say it's a sort of city of ghosts and it has you know it has these two experiences of totalitarianism and uh, you know the nazi period and then the then the split into east and west and and each of these has a certain sort of notion of freedom and and invert and certain and and, and and there is also this idea that things vanish completely, whereas the truth, certainly for post-war Germany, was anything but that. You know, the mm-hmm. idea that the that there was kind of continuity between the Nazi period and the post-war sort of reconstructed capitalist West German mm-hmm. state was at the heart of a lot of the social unrest in the in the sort of sixties and and seventies. And there, you know, and that and, and that was objectively true. There were senior figures mm-hmm. all over the place who had been uh, also senior figures during the Nazi period. Then there's the kind of, it's the question of, of the East and the West. And as you say, there's a sort of, there was a sense that in, in you know, when the, when the wall came down, uh, the German democratic Republic kind of evaporated. It was very sudden and very, and it felt as if, you know, it had been so totalizing and all powerful and then suddenly it was gone and that kind of sense of, of disorientation lasted a very long time and I think still lasts today to some extent for older former East German people. But to put a, a book which is quite concerned with ideas of human freedom and ideas about surveillance in particular and mm-hmm. control into Berlin, I mean, that, that gives you that gives you a kind of a sort of a, a sort of set of things to play with that I, I think very very interesting. And mm-hmm. in my my fictional institution is this the Deuter Center is a is the the foundation of a a rich uh, German industrialist, one of the sort of beneficiaries of this or well, the architects of this post war boom, and who has this idea about. Uh, transparency and the public sphere and it, you know the, he wants to put his money he wanted to put his money towards an institution which kind of promoted a kind of i suppose you'd sort of say a sort of habermasian idea of public uh, of, of the public sphere where you know people would debate and and everything would be clear and the best idea would win through it's a sort of liberal dream and in a sort of satirical way I have some fun with the the institution's rules around around this and ask the question about transparency I mean this the, the thing that you always hear with regard to surveillance about if you have nothing to hide you have nothing to fear um, sure. and I'm I'm interested in this a reduction of the space of privacy for all of us you know we mm-hmm. we carry we carry little tracking devices voluntarily around in our pockets and and we're used to living in a world where at least potentially we could always be overheard or or, or mm-hmm. photographed and and my contention is that that's that does reduce a sort of scope of of, of um experimentation and, mm-hmm. and and of sort of self of of being able to be incoherent in a way in yourself before you're you bring yourself out into to public. I mean that moment where you step forward from your private thoughts or your into a kind of public assertion of something, or even being visible in public. You know, you go from you know in your in your robe and your slippers to to you know dressed for the outside. I mean these these are transitions that we want to be able to manage and control and 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 often those decisions are are kind of taken away from us now. Mm-hmm. And in fact, sort of changes which have, I guess have been foisted on us from a psychological point of view very quickly as well. I mean, I said at the beginning, like, oh, you know, from from what one could publicly find out about you, you know, there might be some overlaps with the characters. And the way one might publicly find it out is just do a quick Google of your name and then just find all this stuff, which for a novelist, even 20 years ago, would not necessarily have been possible. Like the novelist would have just been, uh, had they so wished the name on the book like it would be to be a Thomas Pynchon today is um, is almost impossible and that sort of I think changes both the way I'm sure novelists behave but also the way readers like that we engage with the book like even that discussion of how much does this character overlap with your life perhaps would have been 
would not have been had or would have been had very differently before. Yeah, I mean, again, it comes back to this idea of being entrepreneurs. The the artists are expected to to have a sort of presentation of selfhood in in addition to kind of making work. And, you know, I I suppose I've got used to it now. I mean, but but I, I, I... I have in, indulged in imagining in the past a kind of, you know, as the kind of world where a book could kind of go out into it and just be itself rather than mm-hmm. be attached to, you know, lots of, lots of interviews and, and pictures and, and, and other which attach it to a, to a kind of, you know, sort of phantom of the, of, of the author. But I mean, that's not, you know, that's, it's, it's true for, it's true for everybody. I mean, we're all supposed to be out there self-optimizing and kind of achieving and, and, uh, you know, living our best lives, you know, hashtag YOLO. And, 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 <laughs> and it's a kind of, it, it, it's, um, it, you know, it often feels, you know, like an obligation to perform your, yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's certainly not unique to, to, to writers and artists yeah. and of course that concept of the self is central to uh well firstly the the narrator in this book because uh, his project uh, his um uh the, the, the submission to the deuter center was about the, the sort of the the construction of the self in lyric poetry so it's you know it's while it you know in many ways that setting it sort of several centuries out of our time um, when particularly uh, when he's reading about and writing about uh, Kleist, uh, a poet, I must admit, I was, I heard the name, but that was the, sort of the extent of my familiarity with him before this book. You realise that sort of there are not exactly parallels between the internet age, age and Kleist's time, but perhaps at least a sort of a continuum can be drawn f- from this kind of emergence of the self in, would you say sort of, are we talking romantic times here, or sort of there or thereabouts? Yeah, I mean, the, the, so the, the the central character he's he's a non-fiction writer, a slightly sort of scrappy non-fiction writer, and I've given him, and he has these these quite grandiose ideas that you know, I mean, what he wanted to do at one point was to write a book about the revolutionary potential of the arts, and and mm-hmm. out of his failure to write that book, a kind of unexpectedly popular little book of cultural essays came out, and that's what the basis of his reputation such as it is um and 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 now and the, as you say the book he's he's gone to the deuter center to write is about lyric poetry and the self this kind of almost sort of deliberately high-flown uh notion and of course you know the lyric eye the first person of lyric poetry is a very weird thing i mean you know if you, if you're a novelist you know and you write i it's kind of understood that you're constructing a character you know if you're a you know, an essayist or a memoirist, the assumption is that that eye is very close to you. But the, you know, the eye of lyric poetry is is a kind of selfhood that's very involved in contemplating its own experience of being a self. You know, you could mm-hmm. say it's a particular kind of, uh, of, of first person that actually has helped historically construct our feelings about what it is to be a person subsequently you know you mentioned that it does come out of romanticism and 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 this this idea of of a kind of uh of bit of almost sort of being attuned to one's own experience of existing mm-hmm. in the world you know that would be the kind of that would be the sort of reflexive moment of of romanticism there you are you're standing on the high hill looking at the landscape and you are uh, exquisitely aware of 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 the the vibrations that the landscape is mm-hmm. is producing inside you. There you are. You're the, you know, that's that that's the sort of romantic poet. Um, mm-hmm. And that's I think the American the, edition of this book, the, the cover, the choice of image on the cover, sort of encapsulates that completely. Yeah, I mean, in the, and the, the, the British edition has has a, has has a picture of Heinrich von Kleist with sort of outright laser eyes, and the and the American <laughs> edition has that that uh, Caspar David Friedrich picture wanderer on the sea of fog, above the sea of fog, mm. which has become a kind of, I mean, it's become a ridiculous cliche of, of publishing books about romanticism and about the self. And we've, you know, and we've played with that sort of obscured that image with a strange mm. kind of like psychedelic, I don't know what you call it, a kind of box, a psychedelic box, yeah. uh, <laughs> or a, you know, a, a sort of psychedelic screen of some kind over that. But, now there he is. He's you know in on that in that 
picture which people will be very familiar with you see you see the guy from behind so you can kind of almost identify with him you can step forward and kind of become this this person who's standing on a high cliff and the fog metaphorically of course is a sort of fog of unknowing and it's the fog of like the mass experience you know the mm-hmm. romantic is always about the the exquisite individual versus a kind of less ex- rather less exquisite mass so all these things are kind of um sort of wrapped up in uh yeah in this in this character's experience of himself and instead of of kind of finding a a, a context where he can kind of basically play it being Goethe or or Hölderlin or whatever it was he wanted to do (laughs) he ends up he discovers that where he's staying is very close to the grave of Kleist who who died Mm -hmm. in a suicide pact in his early 30s and was a very very agitated unhappy um a kind of abrasive character and 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 he and and to me a very a very sort of modern a very interestingly modern sort of subjectivity i mean he was a you know a, a quick a quick capsule biography of Christ would be that he was you know he's a prussian yunker he's a, a nobleman who basically screwed up every single one of the many opportunities he was given he just couldn't <laughs> he couldn't kind of stick with anything and you know, and 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 he wrote these very strange uh overwrought stories and plays which have got like too much action in them and 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 people you know you know people are about to be executed and then an earthquake happens and you know once one thing after another it's very un un um i keep talking about this word exquisite it's very very un uh it's very uncalming kind of uh, mm. writing and so sort of involuntarily the narrator starts kind of thinking about about this unhappy writer from 200 years previously and 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 and, and unpicking kleist becomes another strand in this in this book about what it means to sort of be a writer and what it means to have a self, I suppose. Yeah. 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 One of his, um, one of the things that prevents him uh, from this kind of Goethe like experience as well is, as you mentioned, those kind of the rules of the, of the Deuter center. So as, as we mentioned that it's sort of, it is um, it's about openness, let's say it's sort of maybe a generous way to put it. It's a, so, so the, the workspaces are common, which um, obviously poses a certain problem for uh, for our narrator. Um, what, but one thing that that really struck me was uh, when you talk about concepts of privacy and things earlier. And these are kind of these are things which could quite easily have come out of the mouth of someone like Mark Zuckerberg, and yet uh, it seemed like you very carefully sort of avoided putting the internet at the center of of these questions so you know the internet does feature particularly later in the lot in, in in the novel and we may get into that but the sort of a lot of these a lot of these questions a lot of the problems that are posed seem to almost be sort of like a lot of the questions we ask ourselves about the way we engage online or with our devices but in some way divorced from that and more kind of embodied in the uh, in the physical world yeah i was talking to a, to a, a german journalist the other day and he reminded me that they they back in the 90s we used to talk about netzkultur or uh internet culture as something that Mm -hmm. is separate from from normal life and you know especially he said in the german context there would be it would be a word sort of almost like a dismissive thing you could say well this is just a phenomenon of netzkultur it's not it doesn't bleed through into the rest of life. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, now I, I don't, you almost don't need to, you don't need to have the furniture of the internet or to be kind of framing things as emails or to be kind of, you know, writing, you know, instant messaging things or caption things to, 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 for people to understand that this way of being and this kind of, uh, the grammar of an internet life is, is these are the kind of grooves through which we, we we run our experience on and offline now. I mean, there have been some recent novels which have been very kind of concerned with Twitter self presentation and so on. And that, mm-hmm. yeah, that interests me less than just a, the 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 way that a certain sort of self awareness and of 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 sort of slightly metricated self awareness, you know, likes mm-hmm. and uh, follows these kind of you know numerical things that kind of chase us around that like we're we have many, many ways to measure ourselves and to see ourselves as we're presenting ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think there's also that the sort of the 
the fact that the, uh, the the location of the Deutsche Center in in Berlin, and as we spoke about this kind of this sort of uh, parallel history in a way, like allows you to uh, to explore particularly, obviously, concept of surveillance through uh, through looking at the Stasi. Um, and there is um, a sort of sort of a section in the middle of the book, and I'm going to try and talk about this without giving too much away, but where you um, where one one particular character sort of recounts her, uh, the, her time on the the punk scene in uh, in East Berlin, and this was um, something I, I found particularly fascinating. It reminded me I don't know Berlin particularly well. I've only visited a couple of times, but the first time I was there, I was wandering about and I came upon a shop of sort of essentially souvenirs from the uh, GDR. Um, and one thing that sort of, I don't know, left me feeling kind of uneasy was this sort of sense of, I expected it to be almost like just sort of objects from, from almost a completely different world. Uh, but what I kind of found was like, they kind of had the same kind of shit that we had, but just a little bit different, almost kind of looked at through a little bit of a kaleidoscope. So there was kind of, there was, I think, like crockery from uh, a cruise liner, an East German cruise liner or something like that. And it was much like you would expect crockery on a you know, Western European cruise liner to look, but just a little bit off. Uh, and similarly, when, when reading this section, um, and actually when listening, and I'd like to talk about this a bit later to um, your podcast, Into the Zone, which... Uh, also has an episode about about this particular epoch, like the idea that there was a punk scene in East Berlin, but it seemed to kind of upend this idea again of this sort of, um, yeah, this world that was completely removed and maybe sort of give more of the indication that actually there was this kind of, this strange osmosis between almost two different dimensions in a way. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, with, with I mean, popular music was was an area where, where that kind of through the looking glass thing, I think, is really is really evident. I mean, the the East German state had one record label, and it had sub labels mm-hmm. for different kinds of music. and And in true sort of central planning fashion, they realised that there was a requirement for the young people to have music, but they wanted it to be good quality music. So the decision was that you could only play music in public if you had a license from uh, the central authorities and you would only be granted a license if you'd passed an audition and your music had been deemed of a high quality. And also if your, if your band members had already, has also done their national service. So in, in practice, <laughs> kind of East German official pop bands were slightly older fellows in, uh, you know, with, you know, with good kind of chops who were, mm-hmm. you know, making kind of nice, nice melodic songs. And um, I mean, there was a kind of countercultural moment called the, the, the blues fans, they called them in the in the late 60s, who liked kind of acid rock. And, you know, there was a sort of, obviously, there's a kind of slight porousness to the border. So there is some material filtering through, but very, very little. And then suddenly, some some kids in, in Berlin saw pictures and got hold of occasional bits of bits of of of, of music from from the, the western punk scene and just started trying to be punks and the authorities were completely terrified and to an extent that seems almost comical that they they thought that it, this was a, a a plot to undermine the morals of the of the state you know probably being backed by the CIA and so these poor you know, sixteen-year-olds who just wanted to, to to dress strangely and jump around found themselves very you know, very seriously harassed and arrested. You know, and I I interviewed one of the first punks in in East Berlin, and he he describes this extraordinary situation where he'd walk out of his door and he'd get picked up by the police almost every day just for having his hair spiked up and, and tears in his clothes, and and he would be interrogated by a Stasi officer who would try to probe him to see you know whether he was maybe an anarchist had he had anybody given him anarchist writings and he's only a kid he's not, not even heard of most of this stuff and so he after the stars the officer would mention it he'd go away and uh look it up so in, in, yeah. inadvertently he got a kind of political education <laughs> from from his interrogator 
but I mean, the, when I when I was starting the book, I, I I thought I wanted to try and connect the experience of these German intellectuals who were heavily surveilled and and, and controlled to questions of freedom or not in this you know in the present day. And of course, you know, we don't live under totalitarianism, and there's a and there's a you know we have a greater scope of of uh, of action to dissent. Um, but I wanted to ask what the limits of our freedom are and, and whether there are any kind of, you know, any lessons about living being completely constantly observed. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the process of doing that, I drifted off being interested in the, in the sort of artists and intellectuals and got interested in these kids because they really were, they were very young. They really didn't want to do anything other than just be free in this kind of inchoate, uh, sort of quite visceral way you know they wanted to pogo up and down to very loud two minute long uh you know uh punk songs and you know they weren't allowed to play you weren't allowed to be in a band you weren't allowed to play in public you you know there was it was all made completely illegal and yet they carried on and did it even Mm -hmm. at the risk of of prison sentences and so i introduced that story as a kind of counterpoint to the slightly sort of claustrophobic self-obsession of the of the main character and also to slightly relativize his, his hand bringing about his freedom. Mm. It's interesting to, to hear quite the sort of level of sort of terror, the punks kind of uh, uh, evoked from the East German establishment. I mean, I remember watching the, um, that movie, what's it? The filth and the fury, um, a documentary about the sex pistols. And I think that sort of, you know, I think, my suspicion is this over exit a little bit, but I remember being struck when I saw that in my sort of early twenties, I think about how the British establishment reacted with a certain amount of terror to the, the same, um, the same, um, the same artistic movement. Now, obviously you have to take into account the kind of the way the British media like to kind of, are almost well, addicted to getting real, a state. It was a real thing. Like, I was, I was, I was seven in 1977. And so just about old enough to, to have some memories. And I, and I do remember my, my mother sort of scrambling to turn off radio one when, <laughs> when some of this music came on. And then, but also being very aware of there were songs that were not allowed to be played on the radio. And that's, mm-hmm. That's very interesting. I mean, it wasn't, to be honest, it wasn't just, it wasn't just punk, it wasn't just the Sex Pistols. There was Paul McCartney, Give Ireland Back to the Irish. They weren't allowed to play, sure. to play that either. But, um, but certainly the punk stuff that was too confrontational to be, to be allowed to, you know, for us to hear it, something would be, you know, something would happen to us if we heard it. I mean, that's, that was a very early sort of experience of subculture. And I think in retrospect, extremely formative for me, like, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, it made me want to go and find what that was and yeah, yeah, yeah. contemplate it for myself. <laughs> it's one thing um, that seems sort of, seems kind of odd to me now that seems to have changed. And I think you, this definitely sort of uh, is evoked in the book. So I had the feeling when I was at sort of in at university or even at school, like, but say university in like the late nineties, there was a sense that like you could kind of go into a, um, a lecture room and you could more or less tell what people's politics were and what music they were into um, by how they were dressed. You know, so you, you know, you had the punks, you had the goth kids, you had the metal kids, you had the indie kids, you had, you know, there was, there was kind of, there seemed to be sort of very distinct tribes. Now, obviously, you know, there were sort of how much people, actually conform to the cliche is, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> could be called into question. But one thing um, that your your narrator remarks upon um, at a moment, he's, he's uh, so he's, he meets Anton, uh, this this TV producer who we'll, we'll, we'll talk about in a second, but he sees somebody come in with a kind of, to the restaurant they're at, with a nine, what you describe as a 1930s undercut. And the the narrator sort of reflects upon the fact that the time when he could look at a young, fashionably dressed cosmopolitan man in his 20s and kind of assume he had liberal political views has gone, in fact. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think there's that's an interesting kind of unmooring, isn't it? It's uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I really recognize your your picture of the of the lecture hall. And I mean, I remember a time when sort of subcultural tribalism was a really important part of self-expression for young people and that was absolutely killed by the internet because Mm -hmm. i think that that 
and replaced with something else. But it, it, it made it before the Internet, it was quite hard to assemble a set of uh, cultural signifiers. You know, if you, you know, if you wanted to look a certain way, it took, a, it, it took, a, you know, you had to, it took research, it took effort, it took going to shops and finding that they didn't have the thing. And then, you know, if you want to find a record that you'd read about in the New Musical Express or Melody Maker or one of these, um, these sort of, these sort of tabloid newspapers about music that used to be the kind of main conduit for, for this stuff, you, it would be like a, it would be a day's project to kind of go and hear, uh, you know, a new song if it wasn't the sort of thing that would be played on, on, on the radio. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, obviously that's now, you know, the distance, the, t- the temporal distance between me hearing about a new band and listening to them can be, you know, basically as quick as I can type. Sure. And so the sort of the figure of the hipster who turned up as a kind of post-internet subculture is, doesn't have allegiance to any particular tribe. The tribe is the tribe of the new. It's like whatever the latest mm-hmm. thing is. And it's it's basically just being able to be ahead of the of the continual kind of co-optation and, and kind of collapse of everything into norminess, into kind of the mainstream. You know, everything is there to be consumed and your only chance to distinguish yourself is to consume a little harder, a little earlier. Um but there's, you know, but there's, there's also something to do with to do with silos and again, and, and, mm-hmm. and filter bubbles that that that's that's there. You know, you can you can be kind of in the same space and exposed to what you imagine are the same set of influences, and somebody else could have a completely, you know, different set of tabs open on their browser and could have a very different yeah. take on things. I mean, this was this was our. You know, certainly having lived in America through the Trump years, this was, you know, brutally in, in evidence is that for every everything that I thought was self-evident, there was a there was another uh, another kind of counter reality being often kind of concocted, you know, fake mm. anything, but but, you know, would be pushed out on Fox and pushed out on uh on the chance and and people would never be, even get to the what would should be the beginning of uh, of a conversation so this kind of habermasian deuter center people rationally debating about an agreed set of facts has to, has been totally short-circuited before it can even even start so uh, mm-hmm. yeah, everything becomes assertion everything is politicized no there are no there's i mean one one michael lewis the the non-fiction writer did quite a good podcast series about the figure of the referee and the mm. basically the sort of uh the the vanishing of accepted referees from our cultural life and i think right. then our social life and i think that's very that's a very smart way of thinking about it is that we you know we don't there's no space which we accept as as neutral and, and whose arbitration we will we will mm. take, which in a way I guess makes things very difficult to kind of pin down in a way like um, you know just with reference to the sort of the subcultures uh, you know in the in the past you know you saw a group of skinheads you knew what this group of skinheads represented and you kept away from them whereas the kind of um, uh, people that sort of Anton and his friends are in this novel like they are first of all sort of seem to be sort of perfectly integrated into society they don't carry any sort of um tribal or subcultural kind of baggage with them because though perhaps because those sort of structures have um have broken down but there's also a sort of sense of slipperiness like there's there seems to be kind of quite regular sort of disagreement on the internet about whether we are too quick or too slow to describe somebody as a fascist for example, and like you know, and and, and I think part of the pro- part of the reason for that is because the the boundaries have become so sort of permeable and so and so slippery that sort of that these words are it's difficult to pin a word to somebody. Yeah, I'm really interested in in the in irony and plausible deniability and this sort of space of indeterminacy that is is where a lot of kind of contemporary uh, extremism operates like the you know the idea of you know the, the classic sort of uh in you know chan culture gesture is you know is the the gas chamber meme or the helicopter meme which threatens terrible violence and then when somebody objects saying you know this is a this is fascist imagery or you are threatening violence you can say well i was only joking you know, you've got ah. no sense of humor and the joking not joking 
kind of uh, thing is 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 that's the space that's opened up for a lot of unsayable things to be said in public and um you know that that goes right that's a kind of style of 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 political discourse that has been enthusiastically adopted by the right in in the US and i think else elsewhere um and i was i did an event with um triple canopy magazine about about um, far-right iconography recently and one of the examples that i brought is actually an example from paris there's a there's a a, a little boutique i think it's in bastille called parigo and they make they make t-shirts and other clothing with you know most of it is is kind of on the surface it sort of seems like standard kind of slightly you know macho hipster stuff it'll be lots of kind of iconography from old movies or pictures of Gérard Depardieu saying, you know, let's drink to that, or, you know, saying, you know, Grand Apache, uh, you know, the, or, or uh, um, you know, uh, Sans Filtre with the Gaulois uh, sign. Yeah, yeah. And then you go for a little further into their catalogue of designs and you realise it's very sort of, I mean, the picture is quite intellectual, strangely enough. They've got, they've got um, pictures of, uh, of, of uh, uh, 1950s, uh, writers uh with um you know essentially kind of winking fascist slogans there's a lot of there's a lot of uh a lot of um legion uh foreign legion songs uh referenced Uh in in lyrics and and uh you know a bit of joan of arc but then kind of beyond that it's the things like uh uh and it is Robert Bernano or Bernano, so I'm not sure how you say his name, but he wrote a, a, a book called France contre les robots, um, France against the robots, and uh, quotes from that the idea of kind of uh, of a kind of nationalist culture that should resist globalization, and it all you know this sort of there are things that you could wear on the street that will proclaim your far right politics without necessarily exposing you to the negative consequences of, of having a, a swastika or, you know, or yeah, a yeah. haircut. And I think that, you actually, that, like, on, that kind of on the down low aspect is very important. Although you mentioning the swastika and I'm, you know, I'm not going to, I don't, I don't have a kind of a, a sort of a reflected opinion on this, but like, um, with the uh, the subject of punk, like we think of, um, you know, Sid Vicious, and you know, was was a famous uh, you know that wearer was, yeah. of the swastika. Absolutely, I mean, and the kind of and the sort of when I was, you know, you know, young enough not to be involved, but old enough to be sort of aware of of of, deb- of debates like this. There were all this sort of drama around. Who was a you know who was a skinhead? Who was a bonehead? Who was you know, were skinheads actually just mm-hmm. the ones who liked Jamaican ska music and were anti-racist, or were they just bald punks? The the fascist, mm-hmm. the fascist punks. I was just trying to remember that that um that that quote that, that sort of that froze my blood. It's Roger Nimier, the Uzar uh, okay. writer. That's uh, and, and um and the the t shirt just says Baroque et fatigant, and and the but. We, we, you'd have to kind of know the, the the longer quote, which is which is quand les hommes de cette planète seront un peu plus difficiles, je me ferai naturaliser humain. En attendant, je préfère rester fasciste, bien que ce soit baroque et fatigant. I prefer to remain a fascist, even though that is kind of convoluted and tiring. So you can you can kind of declare, you know, there you are. You can walk you can walk the streets of Paris and only. A very, very few people would would know this this quote from yeah, the, yeah, yeah. and uh, and, and, and th- those that know know those that you know and, and those that are, there are those that approve and then those who you know object and as you say they kind of this ironic plausible deniability is uh, yeah and, is and, and and you know ranting at somebody about about a t shirt makes you feel ridiculous and I mean I remember yeah, yeah, years yeah. ago being in, in in New Orleans and seeing a, a display of stuff in the shop including some very racist uh, anti Asian material and then going into the the store and remonstrating with the person behind the counter who just sat there and laughed at me you know it's like it's a little plastic doll what are you so worried about and you're you're put in this position of uh, of making yourself absurd by objecting and the alternative is to let it stand and to let, you know, so it becomes part of a, an acceptable 
part of, 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 you know, expression in public space. And that seems to be the um, the kind of the position that um, Anton occupies in in the novel, particularly from our sort of narrator's um, position. So that he is the sort of the the creator of this television show that the narrator becomes kind of obsessed with, Blue Lives, and uh, and it, it does exactly what you just described. It's sort of um, as well as dropping in some sort of. Uh, uh, sort of unnaturalistic quotes from uh, from various uh, various kind of dodgy writers, but it also sort of seems to occupy a space to be kind of almost softening the ground for uh, an acceptance in the sort of I don't know the 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 end of morality or the acceptance that might is right and we might as well just get on. Yeah, with it. I mean, I, I was interested in making a figure as a sort of antagonist for our grumpy hero to to who who is somebody who had a real cultural presence and has a big platform mm-hmm. and you know and and you know if you're making prestige drama for an, you know a big American network then you're somebody who reaches many many millions of people and I I also like the idea of somebody using that as a sort of way of smuggling in a certain sort of you know uh plausibly deniable far-right discourse and and uh and so this character anton is both uh a a working showrunner for a big cop show uh, called blue lives and and is on the down low something of an of an activist in in far-right circles and kind of networked into some i know people in in europe and um, and as you say, yeah, he kind of, he does these sort of winking sort of asides, almost like kind of soliloquies, these characters, they break out of their naturalistic sort of cop show world in order to give these, give these addresses to the camera that are, you know, quotes from, from writers who are sort of canonical to the, to the far right or the sort of intellectual part of the far right. I mean, you think in particular, mm-hmm. the uh, maestre, the comte de maestre, you know, the uh, 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 diehard royalist and, and bitter enemy of of democracy mm-hmm. and the and the revolution and uh you know who's somebody who is kind of weirdly quite present right now on the uh on the modern stage because he kind of had this idea of yeah it's a, it's the the world is this constant bloodbath and it's the war of each and against each and only only a kind of uh absolute submission to the god and to the the powers that be on earth to in his case the monarch will you know will redeem us from this kind of constant sort of welter of of blood and he talks famously mm. about the executioner as a figure and how we we pretend to revile the executioner but he does a socially necessary job because without the executioner there's no order and these you know the figure you know that figure, the figure of the executioner, relates very directly to this sort of memeified idea of right-wing death squads that uh, mm-hmm. often uses imagery from the dirty war in Latin America, you know, Pinochet and 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 so on, and throwing people out of helicopters, uh, you know, to to suggest that there's a kind of cleansing regulating rule for for fascist violence that will you know will will guarantee order and that's absolutely around in the culture right now mm-hmm. you know we have you know police on the streets where i live in new york who wear punisher badges on their uh yeah. on their gear and you know the sort of thin blue line uh imagery that the police you know so this is this is a kind of a politicization of the police role you know you may say that's inherent in the police role but but that's that kind of discourse is uh, is is backed up by everything from you know 18th century uh intellectuals <laughs> to to kind of you know present day uh meme makers on 4chan yeah I'll um I'll let readers discover quite how that kind of uh, hero antagonist sort of relationship unravels as the as the book goes on um Hurry, that's all we have got time for. But thank you so much for joining us. Um, Red Pill, extraordinary book, um, really one of my favourite novels of last year, available from the um, Shakespeare and Company website, of course. Um, yeah, all that remains to say is thank you for joining us. Uh, Adam, it was very nice to see you. And, and I wish I could Likewise. be, you know, we could be in, in Shakespeare and Company with you. And there's still some small chance that I might we might make it to Paris this summer oh. but you know it's the virus and macron and his uh you know his decisions about visas are going to be the, the determining <laughs> you know, determining parts of that 
yeah. And if not this year, next year for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheers, Harry. Cheers. You have been listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Links to the books discussed in this episode are available in the show notes, alongside information about how to become a friend of Shakespeare and Company. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider rating it wherever you listen. The intro and outro music is Mr Ginger by the brilliant Alex Fryman, available on his album Play It Gentle. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care, stay safe and thanks again for listening.